Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I interview memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest this episode is Ava Chin. She is the author of Eating Wildly, Foraging for Life, Love, and the Perfect Meal, which has just come out from Simon & Schuster. And Ava, it's a pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, It's great to talk to you, Ron. You are the former urban forager columnist for the New York Times, and let's start by talking about what that entails, because that does play into the, some of the big themes of the book here. Sure. So for about four years, I wrote the Urban Forager column for the Times. I started off at a hyper-local section of the Times that focused solely on Fort Greene, Clinton Hill, those two areas in Brooklyn. And I basically wrote about whatever wild plants or mushrooms that I could find that were growing in those two neighborhoods. And then after about a year or so, I moved on to the city room section of the Times where I wrote my, where basically the entire city was my environment. That was my beat. So I wrote about anything that I could find that was wild and growing that was edible all throughout the five boroughs as well as the tri-state area. And when you say anything, some people might interpret it as as like you're really sort of scrounging for things, but it's like there actually is a fair abundance of things that you could find, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wild, edible plants and mushrooms are growing all around us. You'll be you'll be able to find things in your backyard, sometimes your front lawn. If you're like me and you really don't have a backyard or a front lawn, I found things that were growing on my stoop. I found things growing within the parks, also on the college campus where I teach. They were really, it's, it's sort of an amazing amount of free food that's growing all around us. You write about finding, you know, some of these things are considered weeds, um, the mushrooms, there's a lot of different varieties. And although, of course, when foraging for mushrooms, there's a lot you have to take into consideration there. Yeah, that's right. I, I feel like when it comes to foraging for mushrooms, that's where foragers have to be even more conscientious about what they're picking and more discerning about what they're eating than even the some of the wild plants. Because some of the mushrooms, you know, could either give you a really bad stomach ache or, worst case scenario, could kill you. And there are recipes that you include in the, in the chapters as well for, for some of the things that you've found. Each chapter hinges or turns or incorporates a plant or an, an edible plant or mushroom. It includes culinary, nutritional, uh, at times medicinal history and po- profiles of the plant. And at the end of every chapter, there's a recipe about what you can do with it. I say that, and the, there's like a third element to it too, which is my own personal story. So I think part of the challenge of writing this book was to see the ways that I could artfully weave those three factors together, my own personal life, the plants, and the history itself, as well as some aspect of love, whether that was romantic or filial. Those three things all needed to be woven in tightly together and revolve around the, the plant or mushroom that I was profiling. Right, because I think that the thing that makes this a memoir rather than simply a field guide to wild edibles in, in urban areas is, as you say, the personal story that you're bringing. It's a really, in many ways, a painful family story for you to share. Sure, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think also coming from a Chinese-American family, there's some way that there's like a reticence to air the quote-unquote dirty laundry 
I guess this is a bit of a spoiler alert. If my grandmother was still around, she may have been a little, she might have been a little unhappy um, about the fact that I wrote about her and some of the more painful things about my past. But I felt that it was actually really important for me to do it. As much as foraging helped me to reconcile some difficulties that I've had in my past and with my family, writing about it also helped. I mean, there's a point at which you sort of literalize the metaphor. Uh, or, or describe it, or in, in a, it's like the foraging that you're doing for plants is you compare that to this, the way that you're trying to scramble to find the love and the relationships that, well, let's put it this way. There, there is something in your emotional life, particularly in your family life, that has always been missing and that you've always been trying to find, at, at least in the period covered in this book. I thought about it for a while, and I think that there's something about the way that I was raised by a single mother with these really wonderfully loving grandparents who cooked copious amounts of food, but with this missing father that I was always searching for clues of and about. I think there's some way that I was always... I was I was almost primed to become a forager, in a sense, because as a child I was always looking for clues of my father. And later on I feel like that translated into a search to understand myself better. And then that also kind of led to a search for love. It might be kind of cliche to talk about that the search for love is also a search or a quest for the self. But I think they're really intertwined, and they certainly were for me. I think, you know, given the case that you describe, or given the life that you describe where, you know, your life had been pretty much defined to you since birth, or let's say since you were old enough to remember being told these things, is that, you know, your father left your mother when she was pregnant, and, I mean, that serves to define your sense of identity as much as it serves to define your sense of your family relationship. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I think that definition as a, a woman who had that history of growing up not knowing who her father was, then I eventually found my father when I was in my mid to late 20s, only to kind of watch him go back to his very Houdini-like tendencies. Those things really, like having that kind of history, uh, it was so heavy and it was it was difficult to see beyond it for for a while. I carried that with me into adulthood, sort of that feeling also that I was lacking something. And it took many years and also through the practice of forging that helped me to understand that in fact there wasn't anything wrong with me or wrong with my mother. In fact that the world was filled with not scarcity but great abundance and that was literalized for me by uh, the great abundance of wild food that was growing around us. Although that doesn't necessarily make the healing any easier. I think there's one scene that you write about where you forgive your mother right. and she just kind of, it's not even that she blows it off. She is kind of like affronted that there's anything that she needs to be forgiven for. In a way. <laughs> right, that's certainly <laughs> true. <laughs> well, I, I feel like you know, my relationship with my mother is certainly very complicated. And there was some way that I was always attempting to reconcile our relationship. I, I'd, I'd always kind of wanted my mother to love me as much as my grandmother did, and in the same ways. But there was something about, I think these chapters, when I wrote about my mom and trying to reconcile our relationship, I was looking for morel mushrooms at some point, and 
I made this amazing morel mushroom linguine for her for Mother's Day. This meal took days to prepare. I'm including the actual finding of, actually, let's say weeks. I'm including the many searches and the many mushroom hunts that I went on in order to look for the morel mushrooms. I was only able to find some once uh, a very generous mushroom hunting friend offered to show me some of his secret places where his morel mushrooms grew, where he discovered morel mushrooms grew within the five boroughs. There was a, a whole morning that I spent gathering these morels and then an entire afternoon preparing them to debugging them, making them fit for the kitchen. And then, of course, there was the entire preparation of the meal itself. And I think my mom didn't you know, it, it's it's almost in a way like she and I had kind of a, a role reversal where by the preparation of that meal, I was more like the toiling mother in the kitchen and she was a little bit more like the unwitting, you know, just sort of recipient of the of the meal. And, and it, it occurred to me that she didn't understand everything that I'd gone through because she hadn't done it herself. But that my expectation and my wanting her to was... It was probably unfair to her. Uh, so that actually, the, even though it, it wasn't uh, the reconciliation that I had hoped for, it helped me to come to a kind of understanding with her. And for that, I, I guess I have the morel mushrooms to thank. Now, the process that you described, you know, having to spend days finding the mushrooms, that's one of the two things maybe that freak people out when they you try to talk to them about foraging is like, I mean, well, obviously the first thing that freaks people out is, oh my God, you eat things that you find off the ground. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then the other thing is like, oh my God, you like spend all this time looking for stuff that you, you could, the supermarket is right over there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. There's, there's some way that foraging and learning how to forage, it's an investment in time. In a way that reading a really good book is an investment of time too, right? So you think about the difference between reading a great book and then watching the film adaptation of that book. The timing of it is totally different. You are living, depending on how quick a reader you are, I'm not such a quick reader, but it could take you know, you could be living with a book with a narrative for weeks, right? Depending on how, other things that are going on in your life, how long it takes you to read that book. Whereas if you watch a film, I mean, it'll maybe be over in about 90 minutes, right? It's it's almost the exact same thing with foraging. That, that investment of time for me has meant the world. It has enabled me to see New York City, which is my hometown, in a completely different way. It enables me to see our food in a different way as well. I feel like the meals that I create from forged items, I don't know if I, I would say yes, I would say even a kind of a sacred meal. Right. I was about to ask yeah. if, like, if a meal that you've foraged for is a different experience than a meal that from like prepared items. It absolutely is. I only read the last section from Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma after I'd finished writing my book, but the way that he describes that meal, he came upon for preparing foraged items and hunted items, right, onto his plate and inviting all the foragers around him who helped him and taught him to partake in that meal. He describes that meal as being sacred. 
And I, I completely feel that these meals that I create from Fortage items for me are, whether or not my child feels the same way is another story, but that's, uh, you know, taking things for granted, that's, that's, that's the province of, of the young and it's okay. So how much of your, let's say, day-to-day menu would you say is, is Fortage? It really depends on the season. So if it's the winter time, not very much, but in the spring and the fall, it's probably, it's probably about 30% of our diets. I'm not purport, like, I'm not arguing that anybody should forge in place of our agriculture. It's more that foraging helps us to understand where our food comes from, puts us in connection with both the land that the food comes as well as the seasons. Right. I think it also there's something nice about eating off the food grid, off of our industrialized food grid that excites me. And for the folks that I talk to, particularly the young people that I talk to who are really suspicious of our industrialized food system, this is this is one of the things that are that they find very exciting. There's a recipe in here we give an explicit shout out to uh, to Molly Weisenberg, and uh, the, you know that jumped out at me because I think like the combination of food memories and, and family memories and, and recipes, you know, that's something that she's done really well. I mean, it's a structure that serves eating wildly as well, I think. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I love that recipe. That's, that's, I think that's the, um, the blackberries buckwheat pancakes recipe. So were there other memoirists who it were useful models for you? One of my favorite memoirs is Patty Smith's Just Kids. And I love that memoir because it's not just that it's written by Patty Smith and she's an amazing writer. It's not just that she is Patty Smith and she's writing about her relationship with Mapplethorpe or that it's New York in the 70s. It's an amazing era, right? So it's all those things. Plus, what she did was she wrote following the heat of the story and the emotional heart of the of her story. And I think that's necessary to have readers turn the page to and to be thoroughly engaged in the narrative. I didn't want this book to be a guidebook, right? I'd been writing The Urban Forager for about 4 years and I felt like I needed to tell this story in a way that a 700-word blog post, even a series of them, couldn't tell. Right? I needed to tell the personal story behind the urban forager. And the only way to do that was to combine my personal story with the stories of the plants. You also teach creative nonfiction as well. I do. And, and so I would imagine, you know, that thing of finding the heart of the story, finding a way to take, you know, this external thing that you're doing and find the emotional core of it. I mean, that's something that you deal with with your students all the time. Yeah, we talk about this a lot. We also talk about the issue of point of view. Right. So in memoir, it's particularly important that even if the narrator hasn't figured everything out, because they're, they're not going to from the beginning to the middle, except maybe towards the end of the book, right? But we, as the reader, I feel like still needs to be able to see from moment to moment to understand what the narrator's point of view is, what their worldview, what their take on things is, how they're feeling. I knew when I was going through drafts of Eating Wildly, and I was showing it to some key readers that I had. I knew that there were moments that I wasn't hitting when they would give me feedback like, well, I didn't know what you were feeling at that particular moment in time. 
right? Whether it was uh, with the breakup with the Robert character or some other points uh, that had to do with my family and the narrative. And that's when I knew, okay, I had to go back over and try to linger longer in the scenes because it's the moments where we're feeling the most uncomfortable, for me, the most vulnerable. Those are the moments where I, I, I try to skip ahead, but that's really the moments where you need to, to linger longer and explore the scenes more. In terms of you know, making that transition from the urban forager, which was much more flatly journalistic, to integrating the personal material here. Moving forward, certainly you're probably somebody who can shift between both states as a writer. Yeah, but the question is the question moving is, forward. Moving forward, I mean, do you see yourself in a more journalistic vein or in this more personal vein? I think it depends on the story. I feel like I've been able to move fairly fluidly between the more journalistic reportage to the personal story. And part of that is because I've always written personal essays. Even when, as a child, I always kept a journal. And I also wrote poetry. I always wrote creatively. So there's some way that navigating the personal hasn't been difficult. I think probably what's been more difficult is, you know, staying within the pure journalistic realm. There's always a part of me that was, like, yearning for the more personal side of the story. What will you be out looking for in, in the weeks and months ahead? I would say the mulberries. The mulberries are going to be fruiting in June. And if our warm weather continues, they might even come up a little bit earlier. There is a picture of mulberries on the cover of the book, just sort of at the top panel. And I love mulberries. They are a sort of like a short tree that is both native as well as there's a Chinese version that was brought over into this country to promote sericulture, a silk industry that later on failed. But those Chinese mulberries hybridized with the American mulberries, and you find them certainly all throughout the tri-state, New York City, New Jersey, Connecticut area. You can find them very easily, not just because of the leaf shape, which is varied, but because they're prodigious fruiters. So I'll often just walk down a block and not realize a mulberry tree had been there through the winter, the early spring, and the fall months, only to notice how a cascade of berries is covering the ground. And the flies, the children love them, but so do the flies. So homeowners sometimes detest mulberries, but they're really quite delicious. They're sweet and yummy. So those are going to be out. The garlic mustard is going to continue to be flourishing throughout the summer. Garlic mustard can is considered a weedy invasive, but it can be ground up into a very yummy pesto, kind of a wild sauce. Lamb's quarters is also coming out this summer. Lamb's quarters has the distinction of being considered one of the most nutritious plants in the world. And it was originally from the Middle East and Asia, but it has globalized because it is such a tenacious plant. And now you can find it throughout all 50 states. It's related to spinach, beets, and quinoa. And it tastes a lot like spinach when you cook it. Well, those are some great foods to keep an eye out for in the wilds in your neighborhood. And while you're doing that, you should be reading Eating Wildly, Foraging for Life, Love, and the Perfect Meal. I have been talking with the author, Ava Chin, and you have been listening to Life Stories. Now, if you're subscribed to us through iTunes, that's great, and thank you for it. 
If you're not subscribed to iTunes yet, it's very easy to do. And once you do, I hope you might take a moment to rate and review the podcast and help other people find it in the iTunes store as well. I'm Ron Hogan. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again for another episode soon. Take care.